And my guest is- Thanks Corinna. for having me. Thank you, Corinna. My guest is Corinna Fails. The book is, This Book is Not a Safe Space, The Unintended Harm of Political Correctness. Let me just hold that up for the viewer to see. Thank you. Corinna was nice enough to send me this. Corinna, you have quite a story. So I want to start by just talking a little bit about your background, which, uh, you know, it's interesting is you, you were involved with radical politics and then you, uh, you learned from that and you grew from that. So um, give us a little thumbnail in terms of where you're coming from and who you are. Where I'm coming from. Well, I've changed a lot, as you said. Um, I think what, where I'm coming from now is as um, trite as it is to say, it's from a place of love in the sense of um, wanting to do what I can do to unite people, um, to have folks talk to each other, to try to understand where we're coming from. Um, and I feel like people always have a reason for their points of view. And it's just that we don't, we're at, we have such a bad divide and we're at a point where, I mean, when I was growing up, you were supposed to listen if somebody had a different point of view. And now you're not supposed to listen. You like, you're bad mouthed if you talk to somebody with a different point of view. And that's a radical change and a horrible change. Um, and I don't see how people can learn and grow that way. And my life has been about trying to learn and grow. So now I'm trying to use what I've learned and do what I can um, to, you know, have a conversation. No, I mean, I, I mean, I think I, I came from a similar background in that, you know, I, I grew up in and came of age in the sort of the, the liberal world, you know, the, or the alternative culture. And um, I always got the message that you were supposed to question authority, that you were supposed to debate ideas and opinions. When I started doing talk radio, I, I, um, I was very interested in doing that back, I think it was 1998, um, where I went to Tufts University. I am right of center politically at that point. And the, most of the people at Tufts were left of center and some really far left. And yet we had a good time. I mean, there was a ribald conversation. Mm -hmm. I had people on the air all the time. I loved debate. I loved political combat. I used to have um, Noam Chomsky on. I had the late Howard Zinn. Gloria Steinem came on with me. Barney Frank came on with me regularly. My congressman, I ended up running against him. And uh, it was a great and vigorous time. Then I left Tufts and did other things. And I came back 20 years later in uh, 2000 and, um, 2018, it's 2017, just around the time that uh, Trump was elected president. And the atmosphere was 180 degrees different. Nobody would talk to me. No liberals would come on with me. Noam Chomsky would not return my emails. He, not because of me personally, but just they're not talking to you anymore. Um, the college had set up a, uh, a bias police, like a, almost like a, this agency that would report on anyone who had said something that was seen as politically incorrect or offensive. And uh, that could destroy a student's career. I mean, no student wanted to risk that. You know, you have the parents are spending 50 grand a year. You don't want to have to be called up and have them called and maybe have a black mark on your record or even get uh, you know, expelled. And, um, you know, it, the, the whole atmosphere was really oppressive. And I think that that goes to what you're talking about in terms of the, um, the division. I think that the left no longer wants to talk to people who they disagree with. They want to cancel them. They want to 
end their existence. They want to simply airbrush them out of history. And um, I think that's what you're coming up against. And I, I'm proud that you're honest enough to see it as someone who's still liberal, and that's fine. But, you know, you, you see the problem maybe within your own side of the political persuasion. Well, I don't, ha I feel like I don't have a side of the political persuasion anymore. I feel like politics is part of what is dividing us. Um, and I feel this more as a social thing, as a social issue, as a social calling. Um, I don't know that right-wingers are any more prepared to talk to left-wingers, you know, not in, in my experience. It's a mixed bag. It seems to depend on the person. Right. Um, but I don't feel like I have any political home at this point or any political ax to grind. I feel like when I see what's going on, I want to ask people, do you want to have a country? And if you want to have a country, and it's a real question, maybe you don't. If you want to have a country, then we have to figure out how to talk to each other. And it's, it's that simple, really. No, I mean, I, I think that's the essence of it. I might take issue with you in that I do think that, generally speaking, conservatives are open to talking to anybody, and they do look at all sides, you know, in general. I mean, obviously, we could get into exceptions. But, you know, there's not this ideological piece to it. It's more like, um, you know, a, a, a full examination. They have their views, but they're not, you know, it's really the left that's become very monolithic, I think. And maybe that's because of the nature of leftism anyways, this transformative idea that has to move the, you know, to redefine the country and redefine human nature and just, and remove and destroy any obstacles. And they feel entitled to do that. Well, um, that's the definition of left. Oh, okay. <laughs> and as I said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna to debate, into a, right, right, into a thing. Um, because it's just not who I am. Um, it's not the space I'm in it, it is who I am, and I think we right. have to... I respect that. We have to define things. That's what it's about to be a human being. That's why God gave us the ability to speak and to think. So we can define and name things for what they are. In a context, though, as I said, of respect for pluralism and diversity, which I think is a normal American approach. We don't have one way. I mean, that's why we have elections, because we have multitudes of different opinions and we have a chance to debate them and and then elect people to represent the majority within a context that respects the minority and uh, that's why we have a constitution that respects minority rights but um your book i mean it, you know you talk about here on the uh, you say um what makes a lifelong activist who has promoted diversity and social justice since childhood contend that politically correct culture undermines inclusion and hurts the people that it is intended to protect. Now, I, I think that, that that is true. This politically correct culture is hurting people. It's hurting minorities in particular. I think it hurts the black community because it, 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 it distills everything down to, if you don't agree with us, then you don't like black people. It does, which is a very sloppy way of avoiding a discussion about the real social issues that that community confronts. And, uh, you know, it's a disservice to, to them. Well, I think the thing, you know, and as I make the point repeatedly in my book, and I think it's my bottom line, and I had to make it personal, Charles, because I feel like that's how I learned. Mm -hmm. uh, so other people write books about political correctness, and that's just not my book. My book is very, as you know, personal and punchy. Yeah. And, um, and I- the stories in there, by the way, about you. I mean, it's, uh, your life is interesting. 
I mean, <laughs> you've really been through some some things and you've learned. I can see. I've been through some things and I'm always learning and growing. Yes, um, and I do agree um, that it's um, it that when I discovered that victim uh, piece in myself, which was really at the core of me, and it is from the complicated results of the fact that my family, my parents' families were murdered by the Nazis um, and sort of a legacy from that. Um, but when I understood that, I really did understand the other piece and I understood how limiting it is to be defined as a victim. And I really believe that you can absolutely acknowledge oppression that is real, um, issues that are real and deal with them without taking that extra step of labeling or considering somebody as a victim, because that's what's the most harmful piece. That and the fact that inclusion with PC doesn't, it's not inclusive because it doesn't include the people you disagree with um, mm -hmm. or the people that you have considered oppressors or are oppressors or whatever. And to me, inclusion means everybody. And that includes the kids in the projects that I worked with, as well as PC crushes, um, you know, who's the latest victim. Um, so it really needs to include, and it includes people I don't like, and it includes people I don't agree with, and it includes people I will probably never agree with. And that's, no, that's sure is inclusion to me. Pardon? Yeah, I mean, there's no reason why we have to agree. Uh, right. You know, the, uh, the whole victim card, I mean, anybody can claim some kind of a, a victim status if they look at their life. We all have had situations which have been unfair to us. And there have been systemic, there has been in this country systemic racism. I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, this has been a white supremacist society probably right up till maybe around World War II when things started to change. However, even in that context, it is not beneficial for a person to view themselves as a victim it's a negative thing. It's essentially giving power to an external force and saying, you control me. And, and you literally become a victim. And again, that's not to say that there aren't real victims and that there isn't a victimology aspect to all societies. But the, to my way of thinking, the best way to overcome that is to not be a victim, to take control of your own life to the degree that you can Mm -hmm. and to work with what you have available to you to the best that you can. And uh, I think that in the United States, there's more opportunity for all people to do that than in any other society in history, even with our systemic problems. I mean, we all, every society has problems. And I think particularly in this day and age, if you're black, you have enormous opportunity to achieve, you know, and to express your talents and to develop your skills. And, and to, it's sad to me that somebody would get mired in a sense of victimology when they, they need to take a look at, at their own life and say, hey, I wanna make something here out of this. I'm not going to be, and if someone doesn't like me because I'm black, well, fine, I'll step around them and I'll do something else and I'll overcome that. I'm not gonna let someone else control me. Well, you know the chapter in my book, IO, um, it, a woman who grew up in one of the worst neighborhoods and had every kind of imaginable thing happen to her, you know, from just from abuse to negligence to, I mean, just a horrible life story. And that's the decision she made. She just said, why would anybody want to be a victim? Um, it just gives somebody power over me. And I, she said, I've spent, what did, I think her last line is something like, I've spent most of my life um, making fools out of all of them. 
Um, and she did. She's come a long way with a lot of perseverance and she has a lot of smarts. I do think you should not have to be extraordinary to get out of very difficult circumstances. She happens to be extraordinary. But the part that I was really focusing on was, um, you know, how far her view of herself and of life took her and that she just wasn't going to have it. She just said, I'm not, I'm not going to let anybody feel like, you know, have control over me or have power over me. And to me, that's what the victim thing is. So I feel like she just she nailed it. It was wonderful. I was really. That's amazing. It seems like she also got the fact that we, you know, to paraphrase the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, you just might find you'll get what you need. You know, I mean, we, nobody can have everything. When I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be like Kalia Stremsky, right? But I'll never play baseball like that. I mean, we just, <laughs> everyone has different skills and different talents. And there's a lot of things involved. There's chance, there's luck, there's risk. There's, I mean, there's factors that are part of being a human being that, that either hold us back or that allow us limited success or failure sometimes. That's just part of life. I mean, you know, if you, if you view yourself as a victim, then you're going to end up being exploited by ideologies that thrive on that idea. Because if they can convince enough people that they're victims, then they can march in on the white horse and proclaim themselves the savior. We're going to rescue you. We're going to make everything right. We're going to, you know, and they appeal to the darker side of our human nature. We're going to take away that which is your neighbors because they somehow got it because of the corrupt system. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but you know, it appeals to your own sense of greed and your own jealousy, right? I mean, you look down the street and you see the guy down the street has a better house than you have and a better car than you have. And you, you know, you're seething with envy. I mean, these are natural tendencies. And they say to you, well, he didn't earn that. He didn't deserve that. You should have a piece of it. Or at least we're gonna take it away from him so you don't have to feel so badly. So if well, you feel victimized by something out, outside of yourself, you're, you're susceptible to that kind of a, a pitch, if you will. I suppose. I mean, people are susceptible to all kinds of things. Um, sure. I don't think that's necessarily what's going on, having lived in many of those communities. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that that's what the message is right now. I do think um, I, I want to not overlook the systemic racism that's real. And I really suggest, by the way, that you all read a book by Richard Rothstein called The Color of Law, which mm -hmm. is an incredibly well-researched piece of work and shows absolutely how segregated housing was intentionally created and maintained at every level by every level of government. And it's just a fact. Um, and it's sort of been forgotten and overlooked. But when you start with segregated housing, everything follows from that. Um, you've got problems with schools, everything follows from the segregated housing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I don't want to be, I don't want to, I'm not doing the victim thing, but nor am I overlooking, and this is very important to me, the reality um, that exists because the victim thing only comes up because people go through awful things and have things happen to them. And it's true that the best thing you can do for yourself is how you process it. That's where the, the most damage comes from, how you process it about yourself. But I don't, I wanna be very clear that I'm not 
overlooking what's true for, for anybody, you know, and not just this situation, but anybody, what they've had to go through. I'm not saying it's wrong to be a victim. I'm just saying it hurts you to be, to identify as a victim. And I know from personal experience how limiting it is. And that's where I'm, I'm coming from that space rather than saying you're right, you're wrong, et cetera. I'm saying this is destructive. And it's most of all destructive for people who consider themselves or are considered victims. Um, and if right, it weren't, no. then it wouldn't be a question of right or wrong. No, I get that. And it's, uh, you know, there are such things as victims, as I said earlier, too. I mean, you mentioned, you know, your, your parents or grandparents' generation died in, in the Hol Nazi Holocaust. So didn't mine. You know, th this is, uh, you know, was un unavoidable. Uh, they were victims. And who could have who foreseen that? Mm -hmm. um, but, and I think that the housing, big housing projects were a terribly wrong social program that really did turn out to be disastrous. Uh, that combined with anti-business attitudes that kept, and welfare, which divided families and separated married couples and a bunch of other social programs out of the 60s were very damaging, particularly to minorities. And uh, it really was destructive to the family. It was destructive to faith. It was destructive to education, business, you name it. And so a lot of the social ills we have now were because of well-meaning programs, possibly well-meaning, I assume, that did a, a terrible number on people. And in, the, in that sense, they are victims of it because they came to believe it. And I don't blame them, right? Do you, think, do you think the quote other side though is all fine and good and every policy is correct and etc. because this just keeps going. I might agree with you, but it keeps going back to the right left thing, which is what I'm trying to get out of. Right. You know, right. it's true that PC culture comes from the left. Absolutely. I'm, I was, a, that's what the book is about. I'm the first one to say it. I'm straight up, but I'm, I'm trying to get out of that. Um, that necessary description, you know, at all times. Well, no, and I look, and I think that on the right, you might have the negative tendency to completely ignore a problem and do nothing. Um, you know, to my way of thinking, the American approach is much more pragmatic. We, we sort of go toward the middle and we borrow a little bit from both sides to find functional and workable, you know, pr programs that, that, that promote success. Um, and it's never, it's not, it's an art and a science. I mean, there's no hard answer in terms of public policy. I mean, I think right now a good public policy has been enterprise zones in minority neighborhoods to promote employment, to promote education, you know, vouchers for minority students to go to charter schools and private schools so they can, you know, have a more specialized education. I mean, there are, there are programs I would support that I think have been proven to work. And you kind of, I, I think in this country, we're more pragmatic in that we generally have looked to what works. Everybody wants to solve problems of, of, of poverty and, and, uh, uh -huh. and racial division. It's just a question of how and the approaches to it, I think. So, but um, anyway, your book. <laughs> and thank you for sending it to me. Oh, you're um, welcome. You say here, this is an interesting. Corinna, whose parents' families were murdered by the Nazis, grew up in the first historically black college university before desegregation. She visited migrant camps as a girl, went to jail for civil rights, and slept in her bathtub to avoid the National Guard's bullets 
when Newark exploded in 1967. So you, you've seen a few things. Yeah, I've been around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> around the block a few times. What happened, what do you remember about Newark? Because I remember the summer of 67. In a way, it has echoes to what's going on today in that black neighborhoods are being burned, black businesses are being looted, black people are being killed, black neighborhoods are being terrorized, all in the name of ending racism. It seems like the same dynamic was occurring in the summer of 67. And a city like Newark really never fully recovered from that. Neither did other cities like Detroit and South Side of Chicago. That's true. Um, but I have to say, and I want to draw a distinction between then and now, I understand what you're saying in terms of the optics. Um, but what I have learned, among other things, from having participated in a lot of demonstrations and this is and that's that were filmed and movied and whatever, I don't, I've never seen something reported accurately that I was part of, at least according to my view, uh, from, any, from any press. Um, and so I'm not on the street right now in Chicago. I'm not on the street in Portland. And I think there are likely forces that were, I don't know who's being paid for, but I don't know what is going on there. And I'm not going to mm -hmm. pretend I know because I, I don't have a way to find that out. When I was in Newark, it was the same in terms of it was a riot, it was violent, people were looting stores, et cetera, all true. But I was in the middle of it. Um, in fact, I'm such a nut. I went over to where it started and came back running over to my part of town and said, it's coming this way, it's coming this way. <laughs> because, because honestly, when it first happened, it was very liberating. If you have not lived that reality, I cannot, I try in the book a bit to describe how awful it is, but you, if you have not lived it, it's nice to make judgments about people. But if you've lived it, you honestly wonder sometimes why people aren't rioting all the time. They didn't own anything in their own neighborhood. All of the stores that were owned by black folks in their own neighborhood were not looted. It was not a riot in the sense of being out of control. It was a piece of rage that came out of having been absolutely exploited by all of the stores around them that were looted for years. And I know because I lived there for four years. So I, I'm on the ground. I knew what was going on there. Um, and that's honestly what it was about. And it didn't need outside agitators. It didn't need any of that. It's because people were furious. And I give an example in the book about me that you may recall that I went at, at one point, a bunch of us were trying to get better meat options for a bunch of women on welfare who had been um, basically sent to a company store by the welfare board. And so we went out to the suburbs of Newark and a butcher had advertised sides of beef. And so a bunch of us white girls, well, actually three of us, went out to ask the butcher about his meat and find out about the quality. And I said, how does it compare to the quality of beef in a supermarket. And he straight up, because he had no idea who we were, said, oh, that depends entirely on where you shop. He said, in Englewood um, or one of the suburbs, he said, you'll get prime or choice. He said, if you shop in a Newark supermarket, you might not even get commercial grade. So the fact that the meat was segregated before it ever left the warehouse was still, with all my background, was still shocking to me that it was so intentional, it was so intentional, that's really the only word. The only part, yeah. and, and then when my white friend said, oh, well, sadly, that's because the people in Newark can't afford the better grades of meat, what they didn't know, because they hadn't lived it, is that the meat in Newark, which was literally rotting, was more expensive 
than the good fresh meat in the suburbs. So when you have that, that's just a very real example of the kind of thing that people are furious about. And as far as I know, and I cannot prove this, and I have not done the research, so I don't speak to what I can't know, but my impression from my friends who are still in the hood, and I have friends in hoods all over the place, is that it's still going on, that you know, mm -hmm. fresh food is a real issue. Um, so no, I have what food deserts. No, it's it's right. I mean, uh, you and uh, plus the, uh, the the most accessible food is McDonald's and, and you know fast food, and they load that up with sugar, which is very bad, and it causes obesity and right. health problems. Especially, you know, you combine that with uh, unemployment, and uh, you end up with uh, you know some real social problems, particularly young amongst young black men. So. Yeah, I mean, you're touching on a real social issue. I mean, I think the answer to it is is uh, deregulation, you know, more investment, you know, getting people into the economy. Well, also, I mean, you, if you would think that, I just realized that people like my friends, my white, well-meaning friends, must have thought, oh, well, you can't solve the meat problem until you solve the poverty problem. But you can. You can regulate sure. industry and you can enforce it. And you can say the meat should be evenly distributed. Amen. And do it. Really, it's not that hard. Um, so it, it can be done. It has not been done. Um, but it is not tackling the whole poverty problem. It is, however, attacking an issue that's a real issue for people who live there um, and makes a difference. Um, and they're not stupid. You know? not at they all. know what's going on. You know? no, absolutely. I think that you seem like you've become, you know, as you've developed intellectually, you've become much more pragmatic in that you're looking at specific problems and how they can be solved rather than kind of these, um, you know, being a revolutionary, I guess you might say. Right. Well, I never, I mean, there were people in the organization I was with, SDS, that come from that sort of a very clear left ideological background. My background, I didn't have that background. And I'm not faulting anybody either or making them wrong. It's just a fact. I grew up at the first historically black college before desegregation. Almost all of my friends were black. We couldn't, you know, they couldn't go to the white pool. So I went to the black pool with them. Um, and they were, I mean, it was an incredible place to grow up. Einstein came to speak and all kinds of incredible things happened there. And so it was really a gift to me um, to grow up in that highly educated, these are all PhDs, you know, black folks at a time when many white people didn't have a college education. And they were incredible. A third good Marshall went there. I could go on. It was an incredible place to grow up. And so that was really a gift to me. And it was also a gift to see how much for example, the segregated pools hurt people. <laughs> um, and, you know, all of that. So it's like I grew up with that and I went into the politics that I went into because of civil rights, not because of some overarching thing, but to try to figure out what, what, help, what works best for the most people, what's the most beneficial and what's right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a simple girl. <laughs> you know, that's no, I, I know that. helpful. Yeah. And, uh, what what do you think is going on today to bring things up to um, this year, the year of the pandemic, the year of the, uh, you know, the unrest in the big cities, the year of the election? Um, where are we in terms of political correctness? I mean, obviously, we have a president who pays absolutely no attention to political correctness. If it's one, I would, I mean, I would argue, you probably don't agree, but 
to me, that's one thing that he's actually contributed to the society for both left and right for all of us is that we shouldn't be so frightened about expressing opinions and tiptoeing around and having somebody take out a microscope and look, oh, let's see, in 1959, you were seen in the lobby of so-and-so. It's like a kind of a new McCarthyism. You know, I that agree. means that you have something against black people. I mean, this sort of thing where everything is analyzed and they look at your brain, you know, the cerebellum talks to the cerebrum and that creates a milieu and a milieu. And it's always anyone who's not on the left. Everyone has this milieu. He's throwing a real hand grenade at that. And, you know, people are angry on the left over that. But I would suggest that whether you like him or not, whether you agree or not, that is a favor to all of us because this idea of, con of, of everyone being so controlled in this speech and so fearful, that's tyranny. You know, that's informal tyranny. And, you know, you can have your career ruined and you could have your life destroyed over something that maybe you didn't even say, but that was interpreted by someone who didn't like you and that is held up. And I think that President Trump has thrown a, a, you know, a real grenade at that. And I think we should be grateful to him for that, whether we like him or not. What say you? Um, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, I was, and I just lost the hearing or something at the same time. Okay, whatever. Um, I do appreciate, I'm a, I'm a plain talking person and I appreciate plain talk. I don't appreciate hateful talk. I don't appreciate ugly talk. I don't appreciate blaming talk. I do appreciate plain talk. Uh, and I will, and I say in the book, I'll talk to anybody and prefer talking to anybody who will talk straight up with me. If you're in the KKK and you want to kill Jews and I'm Jewish, let's talk. As long as you don't kill me, let's talk. Let's find out why you feel the way you do. And I absolutely abhor cancel culture. There's no question. Um, I just, it's devastating. It's devastating for everybody and it's crazy. I mean, I don't have another good word for it. Um, you know, I heard a professor called out by a student because he said, on the other hand, and that was considered an ableist remark. And I just thought, <laughs> no, I totally what? lost it. <laughs> you know? What was it considered? An ableist? An ableist, ableist remark, like also. against disabled people, because you're assuming that people have two hands. Oh. Duh, right. So the thing is, I was just like, seriously, folks, yeah, that's you're right. off the rails here. I, this is a kind of hysteria. This is like witch hunts used to be. And I'm not having, and I'm trying to do something about that while keeping what I think is, a, you know, is a core of humanity toward everybody and trying to do whatever I can, you know, to, I don't know, I can't, I can't go so far as to say heal the divide, but at least get a conversation going. And I really mean it. I would rather talk to somebody who hates me and have a straight up conversation with them than have somebody tiptoe around me or tiptoe around, you know, at whatever. I'm not interested. Like, I don't, it's No, I mean, I, I, I'm in a way similar in that I, I used to, as a talk show host, I used to love to have people on, on the far left and the far right, and I would debate them and find out what makes them tick. Why do they think the way they do? Because to me, I assume that my listeners are smart enough to know what's right. And, you know, kind of in a way by talking to them, we learn them and we learn these forces that influence our society. And that's, that's healthy. But mm -hmm. of course now with the cancel culture on YouTube, I can't do that. I mean, I wanted to have on people who are anti-Semitic on both the left and the right. And I can't, because if I do, YouTube will cancel the show. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. 
that people you'll wake up one day and all of your videos have been taken down. It's become, you know, this is exactly what you're talking about, the cancel culture, the politically correct. I can't engage in that kind of vigorous talk any longer. Mm -hmm. Not only will everything be taken down, but they will attack me and say, oh, I hate, I hate somebody. I have something against somebody, you know. And by the way, I mean, I, look, you and I, I disagree with you that Trump is hate, you know, hateful. <clears throat> but I'm not saying all the time. But to the degree that he is, I prefer that to be upfront the way he does it than the way it's usually done with all this kind of sophistry and couching and dog whistles and, you know, this kind of undertone of like almost a code language. Trump doesn't do that. He calls it out the way he sees it. And if it's going to be there, I'd rather see it out front. I'm not saying it's good, but at least we know what it is. You know, it's not uh, like politicians of the past, both Democrat and Republican, by the way, who speak in this kind of sophistic language, which is, it's phony. It's, 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 uh, it's more damaging. I want well, to know I what's coming. One of the things that's going on is also that um, there's, it's that city country divide. It's, it, it's the, there's a, um, a, a cultural piece that has to do with sort of respecting a kind of intellectualism and not respecting another, other ways of knowing that people have, which mostly come from lived experiences. Those folks tend to talk differently from the folks that learned it in school whatever their idea is. And I have just always, I'm a very low to the ground girl. And I have just always appreciated the people that have the lived experiences um, because I feel like they're in the position to know. Um, so I do feel like there's, you know, there's this cultural divide going on as well um, that where there's a snottiness um, about intellectualism or intellectuals and who gets listened to. And I, I think that is also, um, Sad. It's. I have friends who are intellectuals. My brother and my father are both philosophy professors. But I'm just. I'm the girl that wants to go out and talk to the truck driver and say, "What's your day like?" I've just always have been. Um, and so that's. I'm. I'm coming from that sort of space of. I'm not saying they're bad and wrong. I'm just saying it's a different way of knowing. It's a different way of learning. It's a different set of experiences. And I think it's too bad when one is made good and one is made wrong and bad. Um, you know, it's well, not well, one brighter than the other. It's just more side demonizing the other side. And um, I mean, I think that what you're describing is kind of an intellectual snobbery that I has, I mean, that is at the core of the, the anti-Trump movement, in my opinion. I mean, there's a, a snub, smug looking down on working people as, you know, a basket of deplorables. You know, things like, for example, Trump is a big promoter of um, vocational education and, and, and trade education. Oh, that's looked down upon. You know, you have to go to uh, get an academic, you know, liberal arts degree or else you're, you're somehow lesser or you're stupid. When that's not for everyone. And people who get a trade can be very intelligent, obviously, and can make a very good living. And it's kind of this snob view that you know this kind of striving to be one of the beautiful people you know uh, you know that that is all about the anti-trump movement and it's all about the political correct movement in my opinion <clears throat> well know. as i said you're not going to get me to take sides in that way here it's no, not going to happen because it's really really not i don't think in the end i mean support who you want that's your right and i'm not anti-trump 
and I'm not anti-Biden, I said, and I meant, I have no political home right now. Um, and that's a sad state of affairs in one way of looking at it or another way of looking at it. It's just, I feel like I'm sort of beyond that. I want to look at something else. I want to change something else that has to do with people. Um, and for people and and comes out of a real love for people that I have. I just appreciate people. I always have. It doesn't mean they're all good or they're all right or anything. Um, I just like them. <laughs> I like I like talking to them. Whereas I think a lot of what's going on is, is also there's a you know we don't like those people and I just don't. It's just not who I am. No, I'm just I agree. It's not only that they don't like them, but they don't even know them. I mean, they I don't know them. people who in the past who did whole books about conservatives they never even interviewed a conservative but never even saw a conservative so i know and i say that of... in the book i say it many times in the book and i say it to my friends and some of them were like because i come from the northeast i mean i'm in north carolina now but i lived in manhattan for 50 years where i never belonged by the way um and how i got the way no, you, I read know the book, you, so you know how i got there <laughs> and i never belonged there um but you know, it's, I, I love being in North Carolina and having more of an opportunity to meet people with different points of view and talk to them and ask them why. Um, and it's really been fun and enlightening and a joy um, and very interesting. And I feel like I've got all these friends that, you know, old lefty friends and they have their opinions and they have not talked to a soul. They have not talked to a Trump supporter. They have not talked. No, it's they live in their own bubble. And, they live and in their bubble. They don't get it. And, they really right. don't. And you know, and I, the same goes the other way. I don't know any, I mean, you might, but I really don't, but I would, I would apply that equally to both sides in my experience. Okay. Um, so. I disagree on that, but either way, um, Corinna Fells, I want to thank you for joining me. Where do people get your excellent book? Oh, yay. On Amazon is probably the easiest way. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I would love feedback, honest, only feedback. <laughs> really I mean, so, you can get it at lulu.com too, which is pub, which published it, but okay. most easier for most people is Amazon. Amazon. All right, Corinna, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. It's been very interesting. Really good talk. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Charles. All right. Thank you.